0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Ray Penny with New Jersey School Board Association. Uh, welcome to our podcast uh, program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, uh, a program designed to bring educational issues to the education community and beyond. If you want to participate in the program, all you have to do is dial 1-347-989-8904 and press the number 1, and that will let Robin know who's monitoring our switchboard, that you have a question. She'll take your name, and then I'll put you up on on, um, the radio. Uh, You can also log in with Blog Talk Radio, and we have a chat room feature. There's no cost to logging in with Blog Talk Radio. You can type a uh, question in or a comment, and I'll pass it on. Um, I'm excited about today's program. I'm always excited about my programs. I think they're great. But uh, I think the topic is very timely. Uh, I have with me Dr. Melissa Sadin, um, who I'll have her introduce herself. But we're going to be talking about during this pandemic uh, and trauma, which has always been with us, um, how it affects the, our students of color uh, in specifically. So, um, well, first of all, welcome, Melissa. How are you?
0: I'm fine, Mary. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And just tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, I am first and foremost um, a wife and mother. I am the mother of um, both a child with trauma and a child of color. So, um, you know, recent events are near and dear to my heart and my passion. And um, so I've also been um, an educator in all grades from uh, high school seniors to second graders. And I've been an administrator um, in elementary school and middle school. I've been a director of special education I've been uh, a Board of Education member, uh, and I'm uh, doing a lot of consulting now upon receiving my doctorate in developmental trauma. And I've written a few books.
1: So I'm, I'm yes, all around that. the world of education. Yes. Um, so um, uh, the uh, we have a pandemic going on, and we have kids uh, learning virtually, uh, and you know, parents are home with them. That brings us it a host of issues, but um, trauma is not really a new, nor is ACEs. Uh, you know, they've been around. It's been with us forever, but could you explain the, the effects that trauma would have in ACEs? And actually, I guess you should explain what ACEs stands for, too.
0: Sure. Trauma, yes, has been around as long as there have been people living with other people, raising children with had trauma. It, it was called child abuse, um, I think that was a 1940s concept that stayed with us until just about um, 8 to 10 years ago because medical science gave us the MRI machine and the neurofeedback machine. And that allowed us to study the limbic system, which is a system that um, it's it's not a lobe in your brain. So CAT scans and x-rays don't show it. It's actually um, magnetic pulses. So until we had the technology, we couldn't see them in our brain. And of course, what we now know is that the limbic system is the part of the brain that will grow differently if you experience early childhood trauma. So that's really what shifted us from child abuse to trauma, because trauma is so many more things than just being physically or emotionally hurt as a child. Not that that's, I don't mean to minimize that, but uh, trauma includes poverty and discrimination and uh, being in a marginalized community, and being um, an immigrant to this country, and so many things. So um, the, the term is fairly new, and I'm glad to see it catching on. ACES refers to adverse childhood experiences, and that was started in 1997 by Dr. And and Dr. Folletti. And it was really the title of a study that they did on um, the impact of, or the prevalence of things happening to children And as medical doctors, their interest was really on uh, what that does to your adult health outcomes. And, again, 10, 20 years later now, we have tremendous information that uh, very clearly states that, first of all, in any group of Americans that you put together in a room, at least half of them have experienced some kind of adverse childhood experience, some ACEs, and that if you have three or more in your background, um, they can – And likely will impact your adult health outcomes unless you are aware of it and do something about it. And there's tremendous hope in this science. Um, And Mm -hmm. if you want to know more about the details of that stuff, acesconnection.com has everything you'd ever want to know if you want to get more than we're able to do here in this short period of time um, about Uh, ACEs and your ACEs.
1: Yeah, we've had programs just on that because it's important, and it's important, uh, I guess, not just for the person to know it themselves, but it's important that educators know about this as well, Uh, right? Yeah, extremely, Yeah,
0: because it will impact the way children learn. Uh, Trauma-informed education really um, means that you acknowledge um, the brain science behind trauma and its impact on learning and behavior. And that you create programs and strategies for teaching that heal that trauma. And, of course, my favorite thing to tell everyone is those strategies are good for all of our children. Uh, So Mm -hmm. becoming trauma-informed makes you a better teacher for all of your students.
1: Yes. And um, so it's a given that it's going on in our schools with or without a pandemic. But uh, yes. specifically with the pandemic, with uh, students of color, I think we have seen a little bit of a uh, definitely a digital divide. But are, are we seeing other divides that come out because of uh, this pandemic uh, in those yes. households that uh, have low socioeconomic or uh, or students of color?
0: Yes. Um, honestly, what, what is done predominantly is highlights what was already there. And, and make the canyon even deeper. Um, there's two things going on. The pandemic itself has been labeled by Dr. Anden, and Dr. Fleddy, as an adverse experience. So we can all add an ace to our score. Now, how that impacts every one of us and each student we have is individual to the person. And it has a lot to do with, are you in a comfortable house? Um, are you, do you have food security? Do you have shelter security? Do you have job security? Um, Because then the impact might be less on you than someone who doesn't. Now, when we enter children into that mix, they don't have control over food and shelter and jobs. So they have fear around worrying. And, of course, the virus itself. Am I going to get the virus? If a parent or a loved one gets the virus, will they die? And then, yes, so many of us have lost loved ones because of the virus. So that brings fear. Fear triggers a part of the limbic system, and that, in fact, can be a trauma. Now, on top of that, we have a disproportionality because um, this pandemic, this virus um, has impacted the um, folks of color, their population, disproportionately to the white population. And so now if I'm a child of color, I am more likely to have family members who have the disease. I am more likely to have family members who will uh, lose their jobs as a result of the isolation and the quarantine. And I am more likely um, to experience food insecurity. So they, our children of color really are extremely fragile. And, of course, I'm doing a lot of webinars and a lot of research on Um, the impact of the racial tensions in this country on our children of color, uh, because there is research out there on that, and it is a trauma. If I live in Mm -hmm. Minneapolis and I'm a child of color and I'm seeing what's happened to George Floyd, and, um, yes, that is going to impact my availability to be a student.
1: Uh, um, So for our school district, we have to deal with this. Uh, mm-hmm. and its I know it's very difficult virtually, but uh, in the basic, we all have bias, um, and maybe we should explain what a bias is because people say I'm not a racist or something, but could you explain the difference between the two, and then we'll see how it impacts the classroom?
0: Yeah, there, there are a couple of different types of bias, and bias is separate from racism. Um, mm-hmm. Bias basically is a belief that you hold that impacts your behavior and your view of the world. So um, my, my religion as a Methodist gives me a bias. It means that I see and believe certain things because of that um, group of people that I subscribe to. Now, there is something called implicit bias, and that is um, the bias that might occur that you don't know that you have. Um, And so then what happens is that you are responding to a group of people or um, an ethnic type or a hair color um, in a particular way, and you're not aware you're doing it. Um, Implicit Mm -hmm. bias is really where the work belongs in our current situation. Explicit bias, you know you don't like people who have gold rings on their fingers, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you express your beliefs. So that's explicit bias. Um, in most cases, thankfully, in the United States, it is illegal. Um, whether or not um, you're able to prosecute or prove it is another whole story. But uh, at least we've gotten that far—that um, it is against the law to explicitly bias a group of people. But implicit now, bias is often unknown
1: by us. And that by, by we haven't—we don't even re- kind of realize it. Now, how would that manifest itself in the classroom or in our school system? Is it in our discipline? Is it, or in a lot of different areas, I assume?
0: Okay, so there's two different ways to look at this. The first one is um, that bias is an individual thing. Um, Implicit bias is, in my opinion, Ray, I think that um, recent events have only highlighted it, but um, we can go all the way back to Amadou Diallo and you know, 10, 15 years ago, and I'm sure beyond, but we're not tracking the data on um, violence against um, people of color in this country. But that, what we need to do is, is work on our teacher preparedness programming. I call on all of our colleges and universities, you need to cover implicit bias, racism, and systemic supremacy with your budding teachers so that they have a chance to deeply look into who they are because it is next to uh, impossible. It's very rare. That's a better way to say that I can stand up in any classroom in the United States and only children who look just like me. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, you know, the recent um, United States housing um, development organization has, has, put out based on the current census that um, there are 52% of the children being educated in public schools in the United States are of color. So they are not a minority. They are our students. And yet 70% of all of our educators um, are white. And of that 70%, a majority of them are women. So we have a long way to go. But what we can do right now um, is to look inside ourselves, all of us as adults, and make sure that we understand our implicit bias. Because honestly, most of the research says once you see it and name it, you immediately begin in most cases to reform it uh, and not use it. Racism is something a little different, and that's exclusion, restriction, preference um, of a system based on race, color, descent, um, ethnic origin. And it has the purpose. Racism is explicitly designed uh, to nullify or impair the recognition of a particular group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's institutional racism. And I really think that that's that's what we as schools need to look at because uh, we have disproportionality uh, in our suspension numbers across the country. Um, I, as a board member, you know, we've had an equity audit, uh, which is, is painful but I think essential for everyone to do. And um, we struggled uh, with our own disproportionality, despite being in a progressive community where we thought we were open and affirming and, you know, and still it's because, not because the institution anybody wakes up and says, I'm going to go to school and, you know, assume that the children of color are misbehaving. It's that implicit bias, which is why the teachers need to do that work. But the rest of us, board of education members, particularly, we need to do equity audits, and we need to look at the institution that is our school, and where does the racism or the implicit or explicit bias belong? And again, there's there's some in our curriculum. Our history needs, you know, an upgrade big time. Um, but also in in the numbers, are our children of color in detention more than our non-children of color. We have to look at these things and we have to address them. And the way to address them is to work on um, what I like to call courageous conversations, which is a book written by Gene Singleton. I didn't create the term, but if you want to know how to start this conversation in your district, start with that book.
1: And so it could be a district for a board in in the administration. It could be a policy to do some training in this area of bias and, and looking at your, It doesn't take much to look at some of the statistics, and it probably comes out in people pretty quickly. Yes. It's
0: it's right there in all the data we already collect. You just have to look at it. So you have to agree, administrators, it's a good place to start, superintendent, get the administrative council together, and they collect all the data they collect, right? How many kids are in our honors classes? Who are they? And what color are they? What religion are they? Um, how many kids um, are in our dropout rates? Who are those children? So you go beyond their student ID number, which is, again, why I think this is a better thing that starts in the schoolhouse with the administrators who work with these children. Um, and, and you can look at the data. And, and honestly, real-time power school, they will crunch these numbers for you. Um, you know, how many kids uh, are in extracurricular activities? Um, that are in, you can, you know, go download box and check all, all the, you know, the Asian kids, the, the African-American kids, the Native American kids, the Hispanic kids. You can click and honestly look at it, and we need to look at it. And then if it's not balanced, first of all, in high school, I can't say enough about um, starting, to, you have to talk with the teachers, talk about it, read some books. But you need to talk to the kids especially in high school, because they will tell you how they feel, and they will tell you why they feel. And just, I just did a um, webinar with um, Newark this morning um, on this, and it was uh, painful for some folks, and it, it was uh, challenging. And honestly, it's all good. Uh, people who are scared or hurt need to say that they're scared or hurt. Um, and people who aren't need to listen. And we need to listen to our teachers of color, and we need to listen to um, our students of color. Being heard, there's research around the healing of just being heard, whether or not mm-hmm. you are in, you know, if a child comes to me. And I actually had this as a director of special ed. I had a student who was a young man of color, and um, he was also in special education, and he started really struggling with a teacher who was white. And he did not use any of these words, but I started to wonder. I looked at the data. Uh, there were a lot more disagreement girls coming out of her room uh, for children of color. And then when you look at what is it that they're doing, right? So um, Billy throws a chair, Billy's white, and then Jason, who's a child of color, says, I don't like this work. What we're finding, if you really dig to this layer of, of your data, which we have, is jason is you know billy is told come on billy you know better and jason is told go down to the office and the teacher Mm -hmm. did not wake up in the morning to explicitly do that that's the thing Uh, but it is real and the numbers show it's real so we do have to look at it all of us together as a staff and we have to have courageous conversations that are professional and respectful but they can be challenging and this young man um finally said to me one day, I don't think she likes me. And so I said to him, why? And he didn't want to answer me, didn't want to answer me. Now, I've known this boy for three years. Again, this is not a conversation I would have in the hallway or with a student I didn't know. But um, he looked at me and he said, I don't think she likes me because I'm black. And Mm -hmm. I just stopped. And I looked at him and I said, thank you so much for the courage to share that with me. I didn't solve his problem. And I didn't agree or disagree. Uh, And then I did some very private uh, work with um, his teacher. And, of course, she was horrified at first. Um, I give her a lot of credit. I still hold her up um, as someone I'm very uh, honored to know because of the amount of work she did at looking at herself. And, of course, her relationship with this young man improved immediately. Um, But, again, with care, I put gloves on, right? I was respectful. Um, punishment is not going to solve this problem for anyone, teachers Mm -hmm. or students or their parents, um, and parents, there's another thing where the board of education can get involved for boards. I really recommend, um, if you're going to let your administrative staff or encourage them to mine their own data and then create a summary for you that protects the names of the students. Um, the board should, uh, in New Jersey, I love our field representatives. Uh, they can take you through this kind of a training, right, where you read a book and you discuss because uh, our school boards don't always reflect the uh, diversity of our school population. Um, and it's it's not anyone's fault, reality that we need to look at. So if you have a yeah. white board and you have, you know, 60% of your students are students of color, then all that white board needs to say is we don't understand most of our students. And so what can we do? Who can we talk to? Who can we listen to? Uh, and what can we read and talk as a board about do our board goals uh, and does our does our budget reflect our core beliefs on behalf of all of our students? And, again, if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're not in the work like I am, uh, inviting someone in to help you through that uh, is strongly recommended.
1: Yeah, uh, and I know a lot of districts are going through that transition where the demographics are changing and the board usually lags behind that. Demographic change a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So let's focus on let's focus on the students a little bit. Uh, the Students of color, that because you want to help them, and you uh, you talk about building uh, resiliency with them. What do you mean by that?
0: So resiliency is the ability to adapt to a changing environment and to overcome that environment. That's the you know ecological term for resilience. So it comes from like our study of species and resilient species, so the strong survive kind of thing. Um, so in the case of education, we're really talking about um, can our children adapt? And I'm talking about micro adapting, like I'm failing this math class. If I'm resilient, I'm going to say to my mother or to my teacher, "I need help. If I'm not resilient, then what happens is I fold in on myself. I'm unworthy. I can't do this, I'm not good enough, I'm going to avoid this, or I'm going to fight this. So I'm going to tell the teacher that he's terrible and his subject is terrible, right? And all of this uh, is because uh, I don't have resilience. And the other thing is there is a deep connection between those skills that are identified as resilient and trauma. And many, many people with trauma do not develop resilience unless it is explicitly taught. So it is a great opportunity for us. Like our social emotional learning teaches kids how to engage, you know, socially, um, we need to go deeper than that um, and, and add to those programs, uh, con- conversations about resilience. And in, honestly, any instructional strategy that you use that builds executive function, because it's a similar part of the brain, will grow the part of the brain called the hippocampus where resilience uh, takes root. Um, and modeling is always good, too. So, you know, teachers saying, oh, dear, I thought I was going to do a lesson with the smart board, which just, you know, blew up. Because <laughs> my favorite thing is that if your lesson is completely technology-involved, that's the day your technology quits. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and saying it out loud to your students, wow, okay, so now I'm going to have to adapt. I had a whole lesson planned for you guys, and it's not going to work without the smart board so why don't you do X while I think about this, and then we'll come back. Saying that out loud, modeling it. and A lot of teachers are just inside going, oh, no, what am I going to do? But your students of all ages, 5-year-olds, 15-year-olds, will listen to you and watch you adapt. And teachers are highly adaptable people because something is always changing what you think is going to happen. And honestly, there's a tremendous amount of research about this speaking it out loud while you do it, and, and using the word and teaching kids what the word is and helping them get there. Resilience doesn't happen because you tell kids to be resilient. But also, if it's now, you know, 60 to 70% of our kids have some kind of trauma, then they're going to struggle to develop that resilience, which is why it needs to become a cornerstone um, of our practices and programs in school. And awesome for the kids who already have resilience. They'll become more resilient. So you're not, you're not leaving anyone out of this conversation.
1: So that this—that's hard work, for, you because know, you're changing <laughs> a lot of the work pattern for a lot of school districts and a lot of individuals. That's hard in a regular environment. We're in a virtual mm-hmm. environment, which I think makes everything a little bit more difficult, especially since you didn't plan on it. Uh, so, <laughs> what are some strategies we can do to help our kids virtually, particularly our okay. students of color?
0: There's a framework you can use because I, I Ray, you and I could be here for the next six hours if I were to list all of them. There are so many creative and clever people out there. Um, so what I asked you to do is to apply this framework to anything you're already doing and just ask yourself, am I doing things that help my students feel safe? And I'm talking not only, yes, if you are concerned that a child is not physically safe, call an authority and get some help with that. But I'm talking here about felt safety, respected for who I am, and this is where race is a big part of why we need to have these conversations. There are so many children of color, and they don't say it out loud because they don't know how to say it or name it. Um, I don't feel like I'm understood in this class. Um, So having conversations, responsive classroom is a great program. They have tons of stuff, and if you don't adopt the – program district wide there are, the books are still available and morning meeting is a great place to build the kind of community where kids all feel safe. I'd also like to say I've seen some tremendous stuff online on YouTube of teachers holding virtual morning meetings with kids as young as five. Now, of course you need your parents in to help you because five-year-olds either are pushing buttons wow. and closing the zoom room or, or walking away. Uh, of course, my, uh, high school juniors doing that as well, but, um, you know, having conversations and you can do individual zoom or um, small group and class wide. Um, And I know that every school district's handling the, um, the live streaming stuff differently based on your web platforms and your availability. But if you haven't seen a child by way of um, submitting work, or um, answering your email, um, this is where I call on um, our administrators and our board members to encourage our superintendent. You have to reduce the staff to administrator ratio in your district. This is a unique opportunity because we, it wouldn't naturally occur in a brick-and-mortar setting. If I'm a principal and I have 800 kids in my school, I have a large staff. But right now we're all at home. So I'm calling on my math supervisors and my curriculum supervisors, my science curriculum, and the special ed folks, all of those folks in central office, and I'm going to say, okay, we're going to divide the staff up alphabetically, right? So now I have less staff, and I'm checking on them, and they're telling me each week on Monday morning, we're having a meeting on what I like to call KOCs, you can call it whatever you want, kids of concern, you know, who are you concerned about? And sometimes it's not that they're missing, but that they're not turning things in. And then what Mm works for you, it depends on how many kids you have. For some of our um, limited resource communities, this could be a lot of kids. In my Central Jersey community, um, it was very easy to create a list. We worked with our local police. Some of our teachers drove up, you know, stood on the curb, social distancing. You know, hello, kids. And the kids were like, what? What are you doing outside of my curb? What a connection that is. So the first thing is to feel safe. The second thing is to be connected, and I just explained that. Make Mm -hmm. connections. I see you. I hear you. I miss you. Not you haven't turned anything in. You're going to fail. That might be your concern. But what you're going to say to the student is, where have you been? Are you okay? How can I help? Make that safe connection so that the kid can answer you. And, again, teachers, I know, if they share stuff, you're like, oh, geez, I can't fix that. Call your social workers. Call your school counselors. Call your administrators and say, we're going to need to get – a community of people around this child um, or children, uh, divide and conquer. Then you need to help them Mm. get regulated. There are some fantastic um, stuff. You can Google this, and um, there's stuff on YouTube, too. If you put um, school regulation in the search box on YouTube, folks are sharing the incredible online wellness centers that they've created. Kids can all get in there. There are strategies for helping you soothe yourself, for getting enough exercise. Our phys ed teachers, many of them have heard the cry of this and are doing a lot. But if we become dysregulated, our hormones become dysregulated. And there are simple things we can do um, that cost nothing that can assist our body in regulating those hormones, and that increases our availability for learning and emotional regulation. So Mm -hmm. it is a very important part of this is mindfulness and wellness and again um boy you guys have at the internet so many folks are sharing um just tremendously capable teachers twitter too is a great place people are popping stuff up videos of them um having these conversations with their students california um antioch california um just um instituted district-wide wellness centers virtually um so that's get regulated and then the final step of our four-step framework be safe, get connected, get regulated, and then learn. Mm. Please yeah, focus I, on the first three before you get to where's the math problems.
1: Right. I, I will say, because uh, I've been doing, having conversations with a lot of superintendents and educators about how they're handling it, and I think they have been putting that first because they're more – I'm not saying we're putting academics You know, right. – we're not thinking about it, yep. but – they're more concerned yeah. about the social, emotional well-being of their students right now because it, you can't do the academics if you have the social, emotional dysregulated. And uh, what they have found is teachers who take, break it into groups and just let the kids talk to each other have found that the yeah. students really enjo- enjoy that because they haven't seen a lot of their friends, uh, and they haven't yeah. seen the teachers. So just a conversation and that connection gets them to a, a, a good point.
0: Yes, I agree, and, and it's really true. I mean, I can speak for New Jersey because I'm um, so familiar with um, so many districts here and talking to the teachers, and I agree, Ray. I think our educators have been uh, highly compassionate through this whole thing, um, and don't forget to take care of yourselves because, um, you know, educators all feel June tired, and
1: mm-hmm. if you're
0: not in education, you can't really appreciate it the way someone who's in it does. And you need to recognize that your June tired this year is unlike any other tired you have ever felt. And that's because of the racial tension and the pandemic. And you as adults need to go ahead and give yourself permission to realize maybe you're more emotional than you usually are. Maybe you're more anxious than you usually are. Uh, Just honoring it is a long way to feeling better. And asking your kids. I ask my children all the time. Now they make fun of me because they're, you know, young adults. But are you guys okay? Are you feeling nervous about this? You know, you have to ask the questions. Um, And, yes, just letting the kids talk to each other, particularly um, the younger kids who I hope are not, you know, communicating um, online in dangerous ways. Many of our high school kids are on Xbox communicating that way. But you don't want to presume that kids all have access to those things. And I love a good teacher who, you know, again, put a couple of kids together. Not all 25. Let them talk. And we Mm -hmm. have to honor loss. There's a lot of loss in this, Ray. Not just if you lost, literally, um, a family member uh, or a loved one or a neighbor, but loss of our routine. Um, Teachers are are tremendously um, sad about not being able to, you know, particularly elementary, hug their kids goodbye. Um, And our Mm -hmm. high school teachers offering to communicate and check in um, that, that piece, you should mourn that. Um, it is a mourning and a loss, and open yourself up. Have a good cry if that's what works for you. Um, I cry every time I watch something online where there's been a virtual graduation. Um, that is a loss for me um, that makes me cry every time. And we're doing mm-hmm. what we can by our seniors, but it's simply a loss. It happens in life, but... You have to say, wow, I really am missing this. And tell your Mm -hmm. kids that. Don't forget that it's not just the five-year-olds who need to hear this, high school teachers. You know, I I miss you guys is such a valuable thing to say, and it helps you feel a little better.
1: So um, we have, hopefully, (laughs) we'll be opening our schools in September, at least some of the buildings and stuff. What are some things we should be focusing in on? I know a lot of the superintendents, it's going to be a different opening than they've ever had of school, mm-hmm. no matter when it is. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, I think you probably will have to take us, you know, a few weeks to find out where everyone is. And I'm including the staff in that one. Uh, mm-hmm. But where these kids are socially, emotionally, what are some things that you, advice you would say as we look at opening schools? Um,
0: I termed it, just because I've repeated it so many times, that I've now shortened it like we all do, resilience and recovery. So um, for those of you who are engaged in any kind of strategic planning, put it up on the whiteboard um, at at your virtual meeting with all your administrators and say, okay, let's consider all of the many things that need to be looked at if we're going to open schools, right? And put them under either they focus on resilience and the building of that or recovery, So, obviously, learning loss, curriculum, assessment, that goes under recovery. A lot of your social-emotional things, building community, assessing the well-being of your rights, thank you for saying, right, the adults and the children in the building, is building resilience. What are we going to do explicitly to revive the resilience in all of us if we get together in person uh, in the future? And, honestly, if you put R&R up there on the board. Your discussions about transportation, about sanitation, um, they they fit in one Mm -hmm. of those two categories. But by putting the word resilience up there, uh, you find out that some of the things you were going to do anyway um, actually do build resilience, and yay, we can put that under that category. Um, But that's – and honestly, my friends, we're probably looking at a three-year explicit um, attempt to recover. So the other thing, don't make yourselves crazy. We can't fix all this the first six weeks of school. Um, We're going to have to keep building our kids up. The more resilient they are, the faster they will recover their learning loss. Um, So it's not the thing you do secondary. It should be the very first and the most important thing you do because resilient learners learn faster and recover their learning loss so much faster than children who are struggling
1: with resilience. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult time. And I, I know we didn't discuss this, but uh, – well, first of all, everyone's going to have trauma because they all went through this, uh, the pandemic. Yeah. So, and it'll, as we said earlier, it affected everyone and disproportionately students of color and families of color uh, and low income. Um, what about the special ed population though? Um, Same thing. That, uh, so I mean, that's a big uh, concern. Yeah.
0: So, yep. Well, again – just like when, um, as a special ed teacher, um, they would talk about rolling out a new uh, reading program, and um, I'll bait myself <laughs> because I'm <laughs> brave, but, uh, you know, guided reading and uh, moving away from basal readers and that kind of thing, and um, so I immediately, which, because I'm a doer, still am on the committee, and they're talking about this, and they're talking about, you know, their, their gen ed classrooms, and all I could think was, what's this going to look like in a resource center? How are we going to be able to adapt this for our special ed kids? So, that's what special educators do all the time. We also know, just as a data point, that our special ed children learn slower every year. Um, and again, this is as a group, not every child in special education um, has that kind of discrepancy, but I'm talking as a, as a data group. And then we also know, and this is true nationally, special education students show greater summer loss than general education students, which is why there's a concept in New Jersey we call ESY, extended school year, is to try and, and reduce the learning loss, the summer slide, some people call it. So now, same thing, same proportion. So our gen ed kids have lost that the research coming out of Achieve 3000 and um, EdQuest and Harvard Child Development Center is that our kids didn't just fail to complete the curriculum. They actually are losing learning um, since March. um, And and because it's such a different method of learning. And then we're going to add the summer to that. So our special ed kids are proportionately losing more, 18% more per kid than our general education students. So we're going to be building back up our special ed kids for five years instead of three. And that's just like we do all the time, right? So if you fall behind in math as a special ed student, it's going to take a year to catch up. A gen ed kid might catch up in six months. Because of the cognition, because of resilience, there there are so many variables to it. But again, please... um, don't take offense about individual students. I'm talking about data points. There's no easy answer. And, and right speech, OT, those folks, some people have tried virtual. Um, having had students who, who are provided with those um, programs, that there's no way we can even. It's better than nothing. And uh, OT and speech, folks, I know that you are uh, in mourning with the rest of us for the frustration, occupational therapy is nearly impossible to do because the average home doesn't have the equipment that you need. And it can be dangerous to try and ask a parent to do what you do with a child in your OT office. Um, All I can say is that we've come back from something this bad before. Uh, It might not have been any of us currently serving as educators. We might have been babies. But um, the, the world wars, they're saying, um, was where they sh- they saw similar uh, slides and lack of forward motion in our students. But onward we moved as a nation, and onward we will move as a nation from this. Take one small piece at a time, and always keep the safety of the people in the school buildings as your paramount. And we will heal from this. But keep in mind, it's not just going to be. Even if we can get the kids back in school next year, we're not going to fix this. We're going to improve it and improve it and improve it, and then I'm going to look forward to six years from now, Ray, when we have a podcast and you say, "Remember the pandemic? Remember how hard that was?" And we will be saying that from a place of healing. <laughs> um, so I do. I have hope. I have hope for that. Uh, again, educators, we just are need patience. I know school board members can feel that in, in, their, in their staff. Um, they, they need a break, too. So make sure, even if you're, I know superintendents, are, uh, they're, they're up nights. And um, one of the things we always tell parents is make sure that you keep your school hours uh, and, and sleep late on Saturday and Sunday. Superintendents are doing a terrible job of closing their computers at 5 o'clock. Uh, And they must. They must return to some sense of um, healing themselves. Because, yeah, I think football is going to be a challenge. And like in New Jersey, anyway, um, we find out from, and Governor Murphy has done all that he can to to, um, communicate with us, but we find things out, you know, when he announces them. And he's Mm -hmm. not, and understandably so, going to announce something that might happen three months down the road. So we are going to find out what, what the guidelines for September look like legislatively on August fifteenth. <laughs> so um, again, recovery and resilience—that's that's really what yes. we need to focus on next year.
1: Okay, I, I think we'll, we'll end on because you ended on a you that was very positive. Uh, if we work hard and we be. know what and we know that we can't solve everything the first three weeks we have school um i think if we all take that into account and that's the board too because they can't say oh, yep. okay how come the kids that's right you know let's get them back on let's just quicken the pace it just yep. doesn't work that way so well i like to thank uh, dr melissa Saden. um i've known her for a number of years and i will have her back uh i learned a lot tonight uh today so uh thank you melissa Thank you for having me, Ray. It's my pleasure. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast and uh, maybe share it with some other people as we move forward in this, particularly if you live in a diverse community or any community with with students of color. So I hope you all are staying healthy and happy and have a good day. That, That brings us to the end.